This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I welcome Francis Fry to the show. Francis will talk about how to empower everyone to be a leader. Francis, I am delighted that you're with me today. Thank you so much for your willingness to share your wisdom and expertise and a chance to talk about your new book. And it's such a pleasure to join you and your magnificent audience. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, you know, I am fascinated by your background because you recently served as Uber's first senior vice president of leadership and strategy specifically to help the company navigate a very public crisis in leadership and culture. So when you were hired to fix the toxic culture of Uber, why did you start with trust? Yeah, so the 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 first thing that we started with was a, was determining whether or not there were good people there. Um, and if the vast majority of the people were good, I'd be totally interested in fixing it. If the vast majority of people were bad, I would want to move on. So in first assessing by meeting with and talking with, and I think over a period of a couple of weeks, I met with 1,500 of the 15,000 people, um, wow. realized that these were good people. I think the company ended up separating with 20 people out of 15,000 to give you a sense of how many had to separate. Really good people who the conditions hadn't been set for them to behave in the right way. Um, and so, but what was super clear is that there was, External trust was a problem at the time. The drivers didn't trust the company. Internally, perhaps some parts of tech wouldn't uh, trust other parts of HR. Like it was just, this was a company that had been in silos. The silos were competing against each other. And I knew if we could build trust internally and externally, we could also then accomplish a lot of other really good things. And clearly trust is the foundation of your leadership philosophy. So tell me more about that. Yeah. So if we think about like, I want to have more trust tomorrow than I do today, it seems almost impossible because it seems like so vague. I wouldn't know how to make progress on it. The great uh, unlock came when we realized that trust has three component parts and those three component parts are totally actionable. So trust consists of authenticity, logic, and empathy. Said differently, if you believe it's the real me with rigorous and sound logic and I'm in it for you, you are far more likely to trust me than if any one of those three things aren't true. So what we did is went in and found, diagnosed what's the specific obstacle of trust in each of these situations and authenticity, logic, and empathy on their own, we actually now know well how to overcome those, whether it's corporations or individuals. So that was your strategy for really peeling back the layers and and helping Uber as a company, as a global company, tackle this challenge. Yeah. And that and that foundation then allowed us to do all of the other things the company needed, like learn. I mean, so many people, good people came in as individual contributors with hyper growth, got promoted super quickly to managers. They were never taught how to lead and then got yeah. promoted super quickly to managers of managers, another level of leadership that they hadn't been taught. Um, and then also on the strategy side, you have to, it's, it's a little odd to remember, but this was the world where revenues were less than costs mm. for these. So some people went to Uber as their first job and never worked in a company where revenues were supposed to be greater than costs. When you get that kind of um, distorted view, 
everything you understand about strategy is also distorted. So we came in and layered on leadership and strategy to help people think more rigorously for the current day. Um, and it worked in so far as it's impossible to imagine those messy things that were happening. Messy is such an, a, a nice way of saying it. Those messy things happening again. It still has some strategic challenges, but those are deliberate challenges that they're fully aware of. And then they get to make strategic choices around it. I it, I was smiling when you said, you know, so many companies never teach new leaders how to be leaders. And it, it's so sad and so true. Do, do you see a slight shift, certainly with, with Uber, right? And saying, okay, we've got to train people, especially new people who's, this may be their first experience. Well, now, yeah. So the, the employees at Uber turned out to be the best learners I had ever come across. And wow. we ended up teaching them. We ran a pilot of about 30 hours of education. We ran it over 60 days um, and 3000 people signed up for the pilot and like rigorously wow. did it. And so that program is still going on to this day. Uh, so they now teach every new manager how to do it. And many more companies are realizing not only do we have to teach, but even if we got all MBA students in, like a lot of things are changing. So for example, if you learned strategy 10 years ago, I don't think very much of it applies today. You would might have been yeah. encouraged to put the art of war on your side table. That's like exactly. not the right way to look at strategy today. No. So we what we did is updated a lot of what was needed um, and filled the thirst that I, again, I found everyone in the company had. But they I think they very proudly now, everyone, everyone there that's leading has been taught how to lead. And of course, it is a very teachable skill. That's exciting. Now you call this leadership philosophy empowerment leadership. So how might that be different? Yeah. So the the way that Anne and I think about it is that at its like most fundamental level, leadership is about making other people better. So leadership is not about the leader. It's about the performance of other people. And if I can make other people better first as a result of my presence, that's awesome. But the true test is even after I'm gone, can they get even better again? So it's not sufficient that you're better when I'm here, but you're so reliant on me that when I leave, you crumble. We don't want mm. that. It's leadership is about making others better as a result of their presence and then using techniques so that it lasts into their absence. And if the world led like that, we would accelerate at a mesmerizing pace. So let's talk about pace because you have an incredible track record, but culture seems so intractable. So how do you turn around cultures? And I know your timeline is, is incredibly fast, often in less than a year. Yeah. How can others even think about doing it that quickly? I mean, you, you mentioned the great speed at, at Uber. Uh, well, I would actually say that if you're trying to change a culture in longer than a year, you should probably stop. Hmm, that okay. is meaningful change only happens quickly. Here's the intuition behind that. Let's say culture is the most important thing. If it really is the most important thing every day, it's not going to take more than 365 days. But the reason a culture change effort will take four years is because culture is going to be the most important thing. And then strategy is, and then, you know, something else is, and then some growth mandate is. And so culture is just episodically the number one priority. The startup and shutdown costs associated with that, not only is it inefficient, but cynicism can come in. So my advice is for all of the days that culture is going to be most important, clump them and do it all, do it all right now and do it with its, 
don't pretend that there is some magical, mythical future state, which it will be better suited. It will never come. Got it. Got it. So time truly is of the essence. It's, um, you know, we wanted to call the book, How About Now? Because one of the, because <laughs> uh, the best time to act on culture is when you see that one group is being disadvantaged um, or when you see people are being held back and uh, do it and do it now until it's done. It's a one-time effort to fix it. So when wow. we're enduring a bad culture, um, there is no reason to be enduring it again in a year's time. So speaking of duration, do you believe that for leaders, trust is something that is earned or can that happen quickly? Oh, I think you can build trust with strangers immediately using the same techniques. But when you meet someone, they're deciding whether or not to trust you. If you are authentic, rigorous and empathetic, you'll build trust in a moment. If any one of those three get in the way, you'll have broken trust and then it will take quite a bit of time to rebuild. So I think trust, the speed of trust is quite quick. Excellent. Thank you for that. So you are incredibly well known for changing the culture of the Harvard Business School to become more gender inclusive. How did you dissect the problem and begin to solve it? That That's a big one. Uh, yeah. And for the MBA students, so it turned out that women had been underperforming men academically for a long time. And women had self-described their satisfaction as lower than men for a long time. People, uh, various people in the administration were aware of this. So when the team and I uh, were first tasked with running the MBA program, so I, I got to run the first year, which is where we, where we did this, we were like, okay, and it's not just that men are performing better than women, but domestic students better than international, white students more than black, like every single one you could imagine, it was there. Uh, and so we said, let us try, we'd been at the school for a while, let us try a bunch of different things and see if we can fix it. But we did one thing that was really important. We had this devastating data, which is you could see the gaps. We didn't share that data. Super controversial. Uh, in retrospect, it's absolutely the right thing to do. What we did is first tried to come up with successful pilots. And then when we had a successful pilot, we shared the devastating data with the successful pilot and said to everyone, now go and improve upon this. And the reason to do that is that most people, when they find devastating data, they tell everyone. Then people are going to fight about the accuracy of the data, the sufficiency of the data. Are we really doing it? What were people thinking? Could you go gather more data? We've seen that take up to two years in an organization. Whereas if you Bring the devastating data with a successful pilot that shows you can close the gaps. People start uh, stop arguing about the data. And now the magical part of thinking about future possibility. So that's what's happened at HBS. We, you know, the gaps closed in sentiment and achievement. But since then, the unbelievable creativity of the faculty have made it better and better every year, even though those of us that began with it aren't even involved anymore. Well, that's exciting. Francis, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your Working Life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedowdhiggins.com. 
So Francis, I'm fascinated by organizations who are seemingly committed to be more diverse and inclusive. You see it on websites, you see it in mission statements and value statements, but they don't always make it work. And you talk about a lack of accountability as a, as a common and systemic problem there. Talk to me more about that. Yeah. So here's the thing. And I really wish I could go back in time and switch two words. Somehow in the vernacular, we got the word diversity and then we followed it by inclusion. So we talk about diversity, inclusion or DNI, mm-hmm. and it's just the wrong sequence. Diversity may or may not beget inclusion. In fact, what you just referred to is that it often doesn't. Yeah. We'll, we'll bring in diverse candidates. It's kind of lousy for the diverse folks. The organization doesn't get better. They leave and you're on a never ending treadmill. And then you get tempted to give yourself credit for trying. And so you start measuring things like, oh, did I balance my slate? Or, oh, did I like all of these things that we would never measure ourselves for attempts at revenue, right? <laughs> you right. measure revenue. Yeah. Um, so we get into this really unfortunate cycle. Whereas if we could just switch those words and realize that if I create a magnificently inclusive environment, I will attract all kinds of diverse talent. And so inclusion and diversity tends to be the right way to do it. And I don't want credit for trying. I want credit for when we have become more diverse. And the reason we want to become more diverse is that we can make better decisions. We can have we can be closer to our customers and all of those wonderful business reasons in addition to the moral imperative. But it's um, chasing diversity won't work and it brings out really small versions of ourselves and, and really lack of creativity. But creating inclusion and then attracting diversity, well, that works great. Excellent. Thank you for that. You know, it's interesting. I, I'm working with an organization that changed their DNI nomenclature, and they call it diversity, equity, and belonging. And I thought that was an interesting twist. Have you heard that before? It might. Just be- I have, and I hear a lot of these words, and then I start to get worried that I don't want this to be a branding. Yeah. Thing. At the end of the day, I mean, here's how I know an organization is doing great. Like, if you're, if there are no demographic patterns in who you attract, who you select, who you develop, who you promote, and who you retain. If that's the same across demographics, you're doing great. But if there are conspicuous gaps, you need to go after those gaps. You can do it with whatever group you want to call it. But don't let ourselves off the hook that if, you know, if black employees are underperforming white employees, bring whichever acronym you want, but you're not done until black employees are no longer underperforming white employees. There you go. Accountability is still essential. So we are in a unique time, Francis. We're uh, in the middle of a a global pandemic and things seem to be getting better, but much of the country is still sheltering in place. Many people are working remotely. And interestingly, you write in the book about why unleashing people is vital to sustaining morale and productivity, especially in a remote scenario or in a time of crisis. So tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. And and the data surrounding this are everywhere, but it's essentially that um, most of us, when we show up for work, we're only showing up with 15, 20% of our full self. That is, we're doing the work, but we're mailing it in, we're distracted. That other 80% is there for the taking. People are happier when it gets tapped into. And so what our job is, is to unleash others to reach their full capacity. 
And we, we're not just saying like, oh, unleash in some vague way. Like here are the very specific ways. I'm going to build trust. I'm going to set the conditions for one person to thrive. I'm going to set the conditions for more and varied people to thrive. I'm going to have you understand the, the company's strategy and culture well enough. Like there's very systematic ways to do it. But if we can get instead of 15% of people of their insides and their heart and soul showing up, if we can get all of them, we can thump our former selves, and certainly any of our competitors. So there's amazing competitive advantage and amazing creativity to be unleashed if it starts with our people. Um, and when I go into an organization today, I don't find bad people, but wow, have we created the conditions for people not to thrive, not deliberately, but it's been done. And so we have to peel that away quickly um, and set the conditions so that we can unleash people for their full potential. I love it. I love it. And again, the title of your book is Unleashed, the Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. So Francis, this particularly uh, piqued my interest in the book. You talk about how everyone has a wobble, and I love that word, in authenticity, <laughs> empathy, or logic. And one of these attributes can get a little shaky in periods of, of low trust. So give us an example. Sure. So my wobble is empathy. So if I'm trusted, you're going to have faith in authenticity, logic, and empathy. But if I'm not trusted, then like nine times out of 10, it's that I have an empathy wobble. It's that you believe it's the real me. You believe it's rigorous, but you're just not convinced that I'm totally in it for you. And you might think that it had something to do with, it had more to do with me than you. In that case of an empathy wobble, it's important to diagnose it because <clears throat> now we know how to overcome it. But the prescription to overcome an empathy wobble is completely different than the prescription to overcome a logic wobble. So I can't just give generic advice. I need to, ah, it's empathy. Here it is. Or if someone else had a logic wobble, I'd be like, okay, is it that you have great logic, but you're losing people in communication? One prescription. Or you have shaky wobble, and that's coming across super clearly. A different prescription. So what we have to do is really get to the root of the problem. But once we do, our prescriptions have worked around the world, across ages, across nationalities. We're quite confident in the prescriptions. Love it. So what's the target audience for your new book? You know, it's not people at the top of a hierarchy, which is what you would often think about for a leadership book. This isn't a management book. We're not looking for the senior managers. We're looking for people that want to lead. And if we go back to leadership is about making other people better, it's anyone who wants to make other people better. Sometimes it's the senior most manager, but it can also be the person who just joined the team. In fact, I love very much when it's young people leading uh, other people. So it's who is going to use their discretionary effort on behalf of making others better and do it in a way that they're not required long term, but that they leave them better off so that they can thrive in their absence. I love that. So with that definition, it's anyone who chooses to lead. Excellent. So Francis, the book is so action-oriented and I love it. It's really uh, written in, in a coaching way and, and I, I really value that. I think it's very actionable. But pick one thing, right, for our global audience. What's one thing any leader can do to start applying the principles in Unleashed tomorrow? That's a great question. So I'll, I'll do it for a COVID specific, okay. which is all of us right now have a lot going on. And there are times when we have to put the oxygen mask on ourselves and we should, 
and there are times when the Zoom, um, the video should be off, and we should. Uh, and when we're doing that, though, we're not leading. So when we're leading, it's when we're putting the oxygen mask on other people. So what I would say is create the time in your life to take care of yourself so that you can be of service by leading others. It is impossible to lead others if you're not well slept, if you don't have the right amount of oxygen. So I guess the first half of it is put yourself in a position to lead. Um, and then the second half is uh, believe in the unlimited potential of the people that show up in front of you and by any means necessary, help them thrive. Beautiful. Francis, I learned so much from you today. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and expertise on the show. I want to mention the title again, and your book is co-authored by Anne Morris. So we want to give her a shout out. It's called Unleashed, the Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. And of course, the book is available on Amazon and at major book retailers. Francis, I wish you and Anne great success, and I hope you'll come back and see me again in the future. At any invitation. Thank you so much for having me. Be well. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and even better, leave us a review because this helps new people find us online. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like for me to discuss on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.